Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. Brought to you by the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing and hosted by Paul Mann. Want to welcome everyone to the third panel of the Carnegie Tsinghua Center's Carnegie Global Dialogue series for 2020 and 2021. My name is Paul Hanley. I'm the director of the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, and I'm glad to be joined today by colleagues and friends Andrew Weiss, who is in Washington D.C.,、uh, Dr. Guang Guihai, who is in Beijing, China, and Vita Spivak. Uh, who is in Moscow, Russia? We've got all three capitals covered today for our discussion on China-U.S.-Russia relations at the dawn of the Biden administration. We're just over 100 days into the Biden administration. It's a good opportunity to talk about、um, the China-Russia relationship and the impact of the Biden administration's policies. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Carnegie Global Dialogue series, this is our uh, ninth uh, year. At Carnegie Tsinghua Center to host this series, it's a series of、uh, panel discussions which look at China's evolving foreign policy and international role from the perspective of Carnegie scholars、uh, and experts、uh, within sort of Carnegie's broader network at each of our global centers. And as I said, today we have scholars、uh, from the U.S., Russia, and China represented. This panel is the third panel of the series for this year. It will also be recorded today as a China in the World podcast, and if you missed the first two、uh, discussions on U.S.-China relations and China-India relations, and you'd like to go back and look at those, you can find those on the Carnegie Tsinghua's、uh, Center's website in the China in the World podcast. Our aim、uh, for the podcast、uh, and for this morning's discussion really is to help promote greater understanding on the transformational issues. That are、uh, surrounding China's shifting role in the world, and、uh, we have recorded on the podcast over 150 episodes with listeners all around the world. And we'd encourage you to、uh, those interested in China foreign policy and international relations、uh, to check it out. If you're also interested in in China Middle East and China Europe relations,、uh, tune in for our virtual discussions on May 27th and on June 1st. Uh, we'll send out more details soon on those events. Turning to today's discussion, I'm delighted to introduce Andrew Weiss, Guanghuihai, and Vita Spivak. I won't go through each of their entire bios so we can maximize time for the discussion this morning. But let me say a couple things about、uh, each of them. Andrew、uh, Weiss is the James Family Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment. Uh, in that capacity, he oversees research in Washington and Moscow on Russia and Eurasia.、Uh, prior to Carnegie, Andrew was the director of the Rand Corporation Center for Russia and Eurasia. He also has quite a bit of、uh, government experience. He was the director for Russia, Ukrainian, and Eurasian affairs at the National Security Council. He's also a member of the State Department's policy planning staff, and he was also in the the、uh, Department of Defense as a policy assistant. In the office of the Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, during the administrations of Bill Clinton and George Herbert Walker Bush, so Republicans and Democrats.、Um, Guan Guihai、uh, is with us from Beijing. He's an associate professor and the executive vice president of the Institute of International and Strategic Studies at Beijing University. Uh, he specializes in Russian diplomacy and Sino-Russia relations. Dr. Guan is also director of the Center for Modern Russian Studies at Peking at Beijing University.、Uh, both Andrew and uh, Dr. Guan uh, participated two years ago in our Carnegie、uh, Global Dialogue series on China-Russia relations, and it's great to have both of them back virtually with us this morning.、Uh, the, our newest、uh, member of the panel. Uh, is uh, Vita Spivak,、uh, who is an expert on China. She's a contributor、uh, of her research and articles at the Carnegie Moscow Center,、uh, where for three years、uh, she worked、uh, in 2015 to 2018 as the Russia and the Asia Pacific Program Coordinator at the Carnegie Moscow Center. 
it was during that time that she spent uh, traveled to Beijing and spent one month uh, with us at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Um, and we, re we remember that time fondly. Uh, she is now a, an analyst at Control Risks, political risk firm, uh, is coming in from uh, Moscow, Russia. And we're delighted to have you join us this morning, Vita. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Before we quick, uh, kick off our, our discussion, let me just do a couple housekeeping items. First, we do want to give the audience the opportunity to ask questions. Um, so to submit a question for the event, use the YouTube chat, or you can send us a tweet at Carnegie Beijing. And second, as I mentioned, we'll post this uh, episode to our China and the World podcast, but we will also post a video recording of our discussion today on YouTube. So if you don't catch the whole discussion or you want to come back and listen to something that one of our experts said, we will post the recording of that on YouTube. So let's kick off our discussion. Today's topic, as I said, is China-Russia relations at the dawn of the Biden administration, the Biden era. We are already uh, 100 days into the Biden administration. We've seen some significant movement in China-Russia-US trilateral relations and, and US-Russia relations. President Biden has yet to meet with Putin or Xi bilaterally. That's not out of the ordinary as again, we're only just over 100 days in to the Biden administration. Uh, President Biden and Putin and Xi did have a chance to see each other virtually uh, recently when President Biden hosted world leaders to discuss climate change cooperation at the Leaders Summit on Climate. And then last week, the foreign ministers of China, Russia, and the U.S. Uh, met. They saw each other uh, with, uh, with the other foreign ministers of the 15 nations uh, to, at the U.N. Security Council to discuss multilateralism. So they've seen each other, but they've not met face-to-face. Uh, um, but things are really just getting started. And so I want to kick off our discussions by turning to our three experts to help us make sense of the developments in the relationship to, uh, to date. And I'll start with Andrew. Um, I'd like to ask you, Andrew, about your, your perspective, um, you know, giving a U.S. perspective on the U.S.-Russia relationship. I've heard you describe it in the past that the Biden administration is hoping to sort of compartmentalize disputes with Russia, that is, you know, confront Russia when it's undermining U.S. interests or threatening U.S. interests, but to leave space for cooperation on critical global challenges like non-proliferation and climate change. As a China watcher or somebody who watches U.S.-China relations, sounds kind of familiar, uh, sounds uh, like a familiar approach uh, when, when looking at U.S.-China. Um, but so far, as you are watching this, um, I mean, I, I guess the other thing I would say is in the early days, it does seem like we're seeing more confrontation than cooperation. Maybe I'm wrong and maybe you can shed some light on this. But we've seen, you know, a, a batch of U.S. sanctions over election interference by the Biden administration. Uh, we're seeing, you know, Russian troops are gathering in Crimea. Um, don't see yet a lot on the cooperation side. What is your assessment, Andrew, to date of the Biden administration's approach toward Russia? What noticeable shifts in policy have you seen from Washington uh, or from Moscow? Great question, Paul, and thanks so much for bringing us all together for this event. Um, I think it's important for everybody to step back and remember what Joe Biden has said his priorities are as president. And those priorities are dealing with the pandemic, promoting economic recovery, uh, racial justice and climate change. And I, I very much take Joe Biden at his word that that's where he intends to place the majority of his efforts. The world gets a vote and there will be crises and other events that interfere with his ability to stay laser focused. But so far, we've seen tremendous discipline. That was true of Biden as a candidate. It's true of the early days of the Biden team in office. They're well organized. And so when they came into office, they had this kind of 100-day agenda, and it was most visible in issues that you know care, Americans care most about, like getting vaccinated against COVID-19. But in the case of Russia, they had these initial 100-day plans. Those 100-day plans were, let's figure out what Russia did in the 2020 election. Let's figure out what Russia did in terms of the solar winds hack, the poisoning of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, 
and the reports of Russian uh, uh, bounties on U.S. First forces serving in Afghanistan. So they sort of kicked the can a bit for about the first hundred days, and then the time came when those evaluations had been completed by the U.S. intelligence community to put a cost on Russian behavior. And so the intelligence community had made assessments on all of those things. And then, as you mentioned at the outset, um, the Biden team imposed some penalties, sanctions being the most you know, uh, tangible uh, kind of penalty the U.S. can impose these days on Russia. Um, in the meantime, even before all that stuff was announced, different parts of the Biden team were engaging with Russian counterparts on the Iran nuclear deal, most visibly on climate change. John Kerry had a couple meetings with Russian counterparts and uh, the special envoy for Afghanistan, Zal Khalilzad, also engaged with Russian counterparts. And so you saw the beginning of this more, you know, more than single track policy. If you just read the newspaper, you would have thought, oh, we're headed for this you know, crescendo and all this confrontation. Um, and the Biden administration has really taken pains to say, we don't want this to escalate. We want a predictable, stable relationship. And I don't think that's because they have affection for Vladimir Putin or that they like dealing with some of the trouble that Russia is creating internationally for the United States. But it's precisely because they don't want to have to have their presidency swamped by U.S.-Russia trouble. And they've got other priorities, namely dealing with China. So in, to my mind, the summit, and here's where I'll just I'll conclude, the summit was a bit of an add-on to this 100-day plan where the Russians were feeling neglected, were not really happy to see the administration's approach, which was, we're just going to have to compartmentalize our disputes. We're never going to fix them. There's so much bad blood here. Here's a handful of U.S. issues cherry-picked that we think we can engage with you on. The Russians hate that because they would really love to have the big meta conversation about, you know, the, the new concert of Europe that's going to decide everything over the heads of the smaller countries. They want a recognition of Russia's great power status, all that kind of stuff, which they're never going to get. And so we saw this buildup of Russian forces in and around Ukraine. And that was a way of, I think, doing two things. One, it was a way of preempting the sanctions decisions, of showing that Russia has the ability to impose costs on the United States in a place where they have greater influence and greater leverage. And two, it was a way of getting a meeting with, with Joe Biden. It was pretty expensive, I'd say, reputationally. Um, it caused the administration, uh, I think, to be diverted from other priorities. So you saw weeks and weeks of scrambling around by Secretary of State Blinken, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and others, trying to kind of create as much multilateral support for Ukraine as possible and trying to send a message to Russia, don't you dare. Um, but in the end, they're getting their meeting and we'll, we'll see that in about a month. Thank you. It just a, uh, it's very, very helpful um, and, and very clear. Just a couple uh, follow-up questions. In a sense, what I hear you saying is the Biden administration is attempting to sort of clear the slate of issues that uh, that, that that exist took place in previous administration, um, clear the slate, but but impose costs by doing that. So it's not just simply wiping them away. It's it's trying to, as you said, put a cost on Russian behavior, but then at the same time laying the groundwork for a more constructive relationship in areas where there's potential for cooperation. Um, is is that correct? And second. Is there an element, as you talk about what the Biden administration is doing domestically to get our domestic house in order, whether it's with COVID or the economy, get an infrastructure bill, is there an element of what I talk about when it comes to the U.S.-China relationship of trying to gather leverage and strength uh, in ultimately trying to deal uh, with Russia, because I see that on the on the China side, where the Biden administration is trying to gather leverage and strength domestically and with allies by reaching out to allies and working in a more coordinated fashion. And so I often say the U.S.-China relationship, in a sense, hasn't really begun because the Biden team is trying to build that strength and leverage so that when uh, when they begin executing a plan, uh, they're 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 doing it from a stronger position. Is there an element of that with uh, the U.S.-Russia relationship? Yeah, absolutely, Paul. So you're you're dead on in saying that the administration is trying as best it can to strengthen 
its leadership in the transatlantic area where NATO remember, and the USEU relationship is you know, paramount for having an effective Russian policy. Um, part of this involves the transition that's unfolding in Germany to the post-Merkel era. And the administration in some ways has tried to take some of the sting out of various disputes we have with Germany. Uh, the Trump administration had you know, willfully castigated and attacked Angela Merkel um, and made it seem like you know, our enemies were worse in Europe than they were in places like Russia. Um, that was obviously a very bad and sort of self-defeating way to run US foreign policy. So the administration has you know, you know, flipped things 180 degrees in the other direction. There's a question that you know, we all have to ask is, you know, where's the leverage? And is the US less reactive? I, I fear that the Ukraine crisis of the last month shows that you know, we are still quite reactive and that the Russians have the ability in various places to make us you know, chase our tails. And that is deliberate on the Russians part. It keeps us off balance. It provides them the benefit of the element of surprise and escalation. Um, and it allows them to create facts. And the Russians, have, you know, they understand two things really well, leverage and creating facts. And we have a long-term Russia problem. It's not going to be very easy to deal with. We have a you know, series of disputes that are raw on both sides. There's an accumulation of grievance on both sides. And I think it's smart to just kind of manage that relationship. And that this administration is going to be judged on how well they manage it. They're not going to fix it. Um, but at the same time, there are you know, risks of escalation. And the administration needs, for example, to keep our militaries talking, to try to think about ways to make the strategic balance between the two countries more stable. So that's another priority where they're going to start talking about the interplay of our nuclear weapons, our cyber weapons, and activities in outer space. So all those, to me, seem like reasonable, normal things to pursue with the Russians. It will be challenging just because, you know, this is a country, Russia, which has, you know, in many ways feels the U.S. is far stronger. And so it uses tools that basically can gum up the works or, you know, deal with that asymmetry. Um, that's not, you know, that shouldn't surprise us. It's not fun. Um, and it does create sort of tail risk where, you know, things that either side might be pursuing as a way of jabbing the other, you know, is often received as very hostile. And, you know, there's, there's just a lot of, you know, I think there's a lot of feedback going on in both directions. And we see this in petty ways and you see it in serious ways as well. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I'm struck by the similarities between the, the, the Biden administration's approach to China uh, and to Russia. Uh, when you talk to administration officials um, about the U.S.-China relationship, uh, they spend uh, a good deal of time talking about the domestic policies and the domestic, the things that Biden is trying to fix at home. And you started with that. Uh, and so I think there's a common element there between U.S.-Russia and U.S.-China. Dr. Guan, as a, as a follow-up to Andrew, uh, I wanted uh, to ask you how you see things as a Chinese scholar uh, when you look at the U.S.-Russia relationship. How do you view the, the, the tensions between U.S. and Russia? How do you, you view the Biden administration's approach, as Andrew has described it? Um, are the tensions in the relationship, what we often hear is the Chinese leadership sees that uh, the, the tensions in the U.S.-Russia relationship as an opportunity for China to improve its relationship with uh, Russia. So give us a sense of how you and other Chinese scholars uh, and officials in China perceive the rising tensions between Washington and Beijing and how that factors in as well to the China-Russia relationship. Okay. Uh... It's a, a comprehensive question, Paul, uh, but I will try to answer uh, as I can. Uh, for Chinese uh, scholars, uh, the uh, level of uh, U.S.-Russia relationships today, uh, I think the most low uh, level after the end of the Cold War. Uh, think, uh, first, uh, second, uh, uh, we uh, are thinking about the 
uh, crucial uh, moment of the uh, U.S. and the Russia uh, steps. I mean, uh, here still uh, we can find some space of uh, uh, software uh, interaction between two countries. I mean, even most uh, low, but uh, still not uh, uh, most low. Uh, so uh, this is the first uh, point I wanted to say. Uh, second one, uh, of course, uh, the uh, circumstance of Russia and the U.S. relationship uh, is uh, uh, inspecting on the uh, Sino-Russian relations. But uh, I do not think, I suppose, uh, knows very well I'm uh, thinking about the uh, separate uh, element uh, between uh, bilateral relations between Russia and China on the one hand and the trilateral relationship uh, on the other. I mean, uh, uh, China and Russia uh, can keep such high level relationship because we uh, uh, bring uh, much uh, more uh, uh, lessons from the history of our relationship. Uh, we cannot bear the better relationship. And uh, always we are uh, thinking about some uh, police uh, uh, choice. Uh, we must think about the uh, uh, the feelings, uh, the sensitive part uh, from other side. Uh, so just why uh, even some people uh, can find the difference between uh, Russia and China, but we always can uh, keep the balancing uh, interaction. Uh, so I do not think uh, uh, the worst relationship between US and China is uh, uh, must be beneficial for China. Uh, it's not uh, all our logic uh, because uh, for China, uh, we want to see a balancing relationship between great power, uh, including uh, US and the Russian one. Uh, so I am uh, not a person for uh, uh, for strategic struggle, uh, because in China we have many colleagues. They are thinking about the uh, relationship between such three countries uh, through uh, uh, Kissinger triangle. Uh, I do not think so, uh, uh, it's uh, correct. Uh, also, I want to say uh, it's not important. Uh, Russian uh, uh, Biden administration or Trump one, uh, uh, both Russia and the U.S. Uh, like each, uh, and China, we are the permanent uh, member of the UN. Uh, we are so high level responsible for the world, uh, peace and stability and uh, prosperity. So we are unable to think about the interests only for ourselves. So uh, we must uh, uh, do things uh, very carefully, very rational. Thank you, Dr. Guan. So uh, if I hear what you're saying correctly, um, number one is you see US-Russia relations at the lowest point since the end of yes. the Cold War. Is that correct? That's your first yes. point. Secondly, um, and this is uh, an interesting point. There's still room to get lower, right? Is that what you're saying? There, there's yes, still, of course. There's still possible. But because here we have not war. Here we what? We have not the war. We don't yet have the worst. So yes. it, could, it, could, it could be worse. Uh, and then third, um, as we talked about uh, two years ago in the uh, Carnegie Global Dialogue, um, you are not one that sees the strategic triangle as the most important factor here. Um, Russia, China have important reasons to strengthen their relationship on their own. 
Um, and there may be other Chinese scholars that focus more on the strategic triangle between Russia, China, and the U.S., um, but that's not the emphasis that you put on it, because as permanent members of the U.N. Security Council, China and Russia need to think not only about their own interests, but the interests of the broader international community. Did I summarize that well? Yes. Great. Great. Thank you. And the, the other point, I, I guess I heard you was the reason that the U.S.-Russia relationship can get worse is because we haven't had war. Is that what you said? We haven't had war yet. Uh, I think uh, the uh, possibility is uh, uh, absolutely low, uh, I mean, to have war between Russia and the U.S. Right. But you made that comment just to point out that the relations could get worse. Uh, I don't think uh, you can get your relationship uh, even more worse uh, because uh, you have not... Uh, uh, exchange of scholars and uh, you have very low level uh, trade and uh, almost you have not uh, dialogue. So uh, I don't know where you can go uh, to worse. Got it. Thank you so much. It's very, very helpful. Vita, I want to turn to you now for the Russian perspective. Um, give us a sense, if you can, of your own and perhaps, you know, other Russian experts' uh, views of the Russia, of the of the uh, U.S.-Russia relationship, as we talked about, as Andrew talked about at the beginning, uh, under under uh, President Biden, um, we've seen uh, President Biden and his administration take a more multilateral approach to its foreign policy, um, especially in dealing with China and Russia, as Andrew and I have talked about. Do Russian experts and officials? see a larger role for their own bilateral cooperation with China now that uh, Washington is trying to work closer with allies and partners. And Andrew mentioned the importance of the transatlantic relation, relationship when it comes with deal, to dealing with China. How do um, Russians see the Biden administration's approach and U.S.-Russia US relations? And then this other piece of working more multilaterally with partners and allies. Overall, I would also just like to point out that um, the Trump administration and Biden administration as well, they often tend to put China and Russia uh, together uh, when they're talking about the multilateral position of the U.S. as a global power. Um, and uh, the, they basically uh, portray Russia and China as a this, this joint threat to the uh, uh, established global order. Uh, so in this regard, uh, I would say that uh, overall, Russia is trying to see how it could uh, leverage the relationship, uh, its closeness with China in its relations uh, with the US and uh, with the Western um, countries. And um, in the context that the overall political rela relationship is developing um, in a pretty positive way in the recent years and uh, in the post-pandemic world, this trend is likely to continue. The economic relationship between the two, the two countries is also uh, getting, getting more and more uh, intensive. And uh, then again, despite the pandemic, the, the overall economic uh, relationship, trade and even investment um, is continuing between China and Russia. So uh, Russia is just trying to get as much benefits uh, from its closeness uh, to China and leverage this and sell this uh, to the West uh, as a way of uh, saying like, hey, what would you give us um, in exchange of, for not falling to China's embrace too deeply? But I'm afraid it's not uh, really working out that well yet. So Russia is uh, driving further and further um, closer to uh, China in both economic and political um, realms. realms. Thank, thank you for that, uh, Vita. And, and it's a nice segue into discussing in more in depth the China-Russia relationship. Um, you, you know, you've talked about uh, the Russians trying to um, uh, get as many benefits as they can from the China relationship, but also using it strategically to gain leverage in its dealings with the United States and the West, saying, you know, if things get really bad between the U.S. and Russia, 
you know, we could really make a pivot towards China, which strategically or geopolitically would be detrimental for the United States. But that's not not working so well, you don't think. Andrew, how well do you think that's working? I mean, if we look at the China-Russian relationship, we hear a lot of talk in the United States, a lot of worries, a lot of concerns. Some people running around with their hair on fire saying, you know, well, this is something that we're not paying close enough attention to. The two countries are growing their relations in a number of domains, not just economic, but security and military as well, and in areas related to global governance. Uh, in security affairs, for example, we've seen an uptick in joint China-Russia military exercises. Most recently, we saw the, the, the trilateral naval exercises with Iran and the Indian Ocean. Um, and then in March, Russia and China signed an MOU on potential cooperation to research and develop a space station on the moon. With regard to global governance, uh, as I mentioned, the China and Russian foreign ministers met recently. They issued a joint statement and it signaled pretty broad alignment on international law and the uh, joint opposition, Russia-China opposition to the so-called international order upheld by the US and its allies. So is this China-Russia relationship growing to the extent that the United States should be worried about it? What's your view on that, Andrew? So it's a great question. I'm, I'm gonna start by saying the answer is yes, 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 yes. And then I'll start doing my best Alexander Gabuyev imitation and talking about our colleague in Moscow's and Vita's and my dear friend um, view of these issues, which I think still remains essential for anyone who's trying to understand it better. And then I'll also mention that I, I remember an Israeli general telling me a couple of years ago in uh, Tel Aviv, that the Russians are masters of getting in our heads and of basically creating a set of themes and priorities and presence. And it, it becomes its own uh, sort of logic and you end up buying it. So in the case of the US uh, fixation on Sino-Russian cooperation, you're right, there's a kind of uh, fashion and panic about it. There's a talk which I don't really buy that suggests that the China and Russia goal is to, Chinese and Russian goal is to kind of create this alternative model and that they'll show that, you know, autocratic systems work better and that the West is, you know, hopelessly discredited by all the problems that have, amount, have accumulated in recent years, starting, you know, well before the pandemic, starting back in 2008 with the global financial crisis. All that aside, there are long-term drivers of the Russian-China relationship that have been in place since the early 1990s, and we've seen a gradual improvement throughout that, that very long period. There's natural complementarity in terms of the way the Russian economy is set up and China's demand for Russian raw materials. There's a desire on both sides to not have intense military competition. They had a very long period of hostility starting in the mid-60s and an extensive you know, burden of military expenditure to protect each other from each other, um, some protect themselves from each other. So it's understandable that the current relationship is trying to be more cooperative and focus on other priorities. Um, and then, as you said, there's these global governance areas where their views are aligned and they would like to see less foreign interference in their domestic affairs. And they would like to have the United States hemmed in in terms of our ability to act unilaterally or without the explicit uh, imprimatur of the United Nations Security Council. So all that makes perfect sense. The part which I think is missing from this conversation, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll conclude on this, is the level of impulsiveness on the Russian side. So after this very impulsive decision in 2014 to annex Crimea and start an undeclared war in Eastern Ukraine, President Putin basically created this idea that I'm going to run to China and I'm going to both show those nasty Westerners how I've got this new buddy and this new buddy is going to bail me out and provide huge amounts of financial and commercial support and political embrace. And I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll sort all this out. And the Russian bureaucracy saw the leader's signal and then rushed to make that all credible and real it doesn't necessarily work well for Russia to throw itself into the embrace of a country that's much more dynamic, that has far greater wealth, has far greater global influence the way China does, because Russia consigns itself to this thing which it always hated, 
throughout the 1990s and dealing with the United States, which is the idea of being a junior partner. So we're seeing a level of short-sightedness and kind of policy on the fly that now is becoming long-term Russian foreign policy trajectory. And I, I think we saw that with the, as I said a few minutes ago, we've seen that in the way Russia has behaved towards its neighbors, the way it's behaved towards the United States. We've seen a lot of short-termism and decisions that create long-term problems and constraints on Russian power. And I, you know, I think in some ways the Sino-Russian relationship, the, the bloom is off that rose. The Russians will see over time that they may be not as relevant to China as they think they were, um, and that they will find that the Chinese view Russia, you know, through I'd say fairly unsentimental lens, and that there's not any, you know, deep, you know, reservoir of charity or you know, the Russians will be flattered by Chinese, you know, saying nice things about them and, you know, promoting the image of the great relationship between Xi Jinping and, and Putin, but it will not necessarily translate into all the great benefits that Russia has, you know, you know convinced, the Russian leadership has convinced itself we're going to, we're going to flow. Thank you, Andrew. And I want to ask Dr. Guan to react to some of that. Uh, you heard Andrew talk about the China-Russia relationship, making the point that there's a lot of reasons on their own merits for the China-Russia relationship to improve, whether it's economics or military or uh, uh, global governance issues. Uh, there's a lot of comp complementary aspects um, between China and Russia uh, that both sides are trying to explore and maximize. At the same time, Andrew talked about the Russians using its relationship with China as leverage geopolitically and vis-a-vis -vis the United States and the broader West. And that in Andrew's view, there's an impulsiveness, a more short-term sort of approach here, uh, that this may not be sustainable over the long term, that there are limits to the China-Russia relationship uh, based on the fact that, you know, in the 90s, China-Russian economy, for example, were pretty much at parity. Today, China is a much bigger economy. It's a much bigger player in the world. Uh, and there's been a real reversal in terms of who's big brother and who's little brother. And that does have some impact. But how do you see, uh, and Andrew also said that maybe the Russians will realize that, that Russia is not as relevant to China as the Russians would like to think. That they're not, the, that the Chinese are not looking at Russia through some sentimental lens. That it's very much a very practical uh, approach to the China-Russia relationship. And thereby, therefore, there are limits uh, to the relationship. But we also hear things about you know, is there a, an opportunity to turn the comprehensive partnership into something more formalized, like a military alliance? How do you see the China-Russia relationship, the benefits and the potential risks from a Chinese perspective? Uh, you know, uh, in this regard, in China, we have um, very different uh, views. Uh, uh, for some uh, scholars, uh, we must uh, create the alliance uh, relationship with uh, Russia, uh, especially when we have so uh, um, high-level uh, confrontational relationship with the U United States. Uh, not important, we have uh, uh, the same uh, uh, ideology or uh, domestic political system or not, uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, many uh, scholars are thinking about the uh, the balancing uh, uh, attitude between U.S. and uh, Russia uh, because we uh, from Chinese side uh, are unwilling to have uh, fully. A confrontational uh, model of uh, great power relationship. Uh, so just why we are very uh, careful 
uh, to the uh, topic of uh, military alliance. Uh, because if we create it, uh, as the, uh, cannot uh, uh, understand the, in another way, uh, we uh, with Russia on the one side and the United States on the other side, uh, it's mean a uh, new type of uh, Cold War. Uh, I don't think uh, from China, uh, China and the Russia side, we have such willingness to have a new Cold War. Uh, as is the first uh, uh, point. A uh, second point, uh, of course, uh, between China and Russia, we have many common interests, uh, as uh, Andy mentioned, uh, but also we have difference uh, because uh, China, as you know, mostly uh, uh, focus on the uh, uh, economy uh, development and uh, domestic stability. Uh, but uh, Russia has more potential in uh, uh, strategy, uh, planning strategy uh, steps uh, uh, over the globe. Uh, China today still is not such actor in the global politics. Uh, third one, uh, we, we, we do not think about the penny face uh, from the confrontation between other two uh, great powers. Uh, it's not all logic. Uh, I, I wanted to mention again, uh, but uh, I know from the Russian side, uh, some people uh, are happy to see uh, the uh, uh, tensions between U.S. and China uh, because it reduces the pressure from the U.S. towards Russia, as they think. Uh, but today's circumstance, I think, uh, 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 is not uh, so good for both sides, for Russia and for China. But still, uh, in both uh, capital, uh, people hope. Uh, someday, United States uh, should uh, remember uh, one of Russia and China uh, may be uh, convenient partners in some global governance issue. Thank you, Dr. Guan. Um, so you started out by saying that there are different views in China, um, and 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 that 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 many do see an. Uh, a need to strengthen relations with Russia, yes. given given the tension in the U.S.-China relationship, um, a balancing, uh, so to speak, um, because tensions are growing with the U.S. that China needs to strengthen its relationship with Russia. But at the same time, what I heard you say is you're careful not to take that too far, that if you go too far with Russia, you could create the dynamics of a new Cold War, and China doesn't see that in its interests. Yes. The second, um, there are common interests between China and Russia, but there's also differences. And China more focused on economic development. If I recall two years ago, uh, you also said that you had wished that Russia would put more emphasis on its own economic development, as opposed to what you said Russia does well, which is um, sort of push geopolitical aims and to be more of a geopolitical actor, uh, which I think what I hear you saying is China sees that as a bit of a risk in its relationship uh, with Russia. Is that accurate? Yes, correct. And then finally, um, uh, uh, some are happy to see U.S.-Russia tensions because you think that may reduce the pressure from the United States, but you don't believe that's the case. Yes, I have read some uh, comment uh, in the uh, Russian uh, language uh, website. Got it. Thank you very much. I want to now turn to Vita uh, for a Russian perspective on all of this. Um, you've heard Andrew's description 
of the Russian approach um, and that uh, they are, uh, in a sense, there's a lot that Russia can gain from its relationship with China, but they're also, they're also using this as leverage geopolitically and that there are limits uh, to how much and that this is somewhat short-sighted from Andrew's perspective. How do you see this, Vita? Um, I would say that um, I would generally agree with Andrew, but in the economic sense, in the um, sense of the economic relationship between the two countries, I think Russia is being pretty practical on what kind of um, uh, products it can sell to China and what um, prospects there are to improve the overall trade and investment relations. And uh, especially in the regard of the uh, unraveling 14th five-year plan in China, uh, Russia will be trying to exploit the new windows of opportunity this uh, 14th five-year plan is trying uh, is uh, striving to create. Uh, so the first and foremost would be China's uh, aspiration to uh, shift away from coal in its energy mix. So that would create uh, an opportunity for uh, Russia's exporters of natural gas to China. Uh, so the, the Russia certain uh, prognosis that uh, China will increase the uh, consumption of natural gas by 40, 50% in the coming years. So that creates a good opportunity for Gazprom or for, for Novatak, uh, whose um, uh, LNG projects have considerable participation from uh, Chinese uh, investors as well as uh, Chinese contractors. So that would involve a lot of investment cooperation and technical cooperation. And um, number two, in, in the sense that uh, currently uh, there are two major technological uh, centers and I would say poles are building up uh, in the world, which is the US and China. Um, Moscow would probably, um, well, it's, it's aware of the fact that its decision on which uh, companies to choose in order to develop the 5G networks, uh, that would impact the global order, the overall relationship in the international stage majorly. And it looks like that Chinese companies such as ZTE or Huawei are a, a very probable candidates uh, for this huge project that is still we still have to see what's how it is how it plays out but uh but still and that would mean that russia is going to be pulled more and more to china's technological orbit but this in a sense of uh, moscow is a little bit better than being pulled uh, into the orbit in the technological orbit of the west with which it um, does not have uh, this kind of level of trust uh, that it has with China right now. So overall, economically, uh, Russia is going to be pulled further and further to China, and it's probably not going to do anything about it. But uh, both China and Russia could exploit this rapprochement in a political way and um, use the benefits uh, of this rapprochement uh, in, in it, their relationship with the U.S. Thank you very much. And I, I should point out to our listeners, um, the, the piece that you recently did reviewing uh, China's new 14th five-year plan, and you've talked about some of that just now in terms of China's goal to reduce carbon intensity over the next five years, uh, and this could limit China's dependence on hydrocarbon imports. Uh, and I would, I would recommend that uh, our listeners uh, take a look at that uh, very good uh, article. We have some, we've got about 12 minutes left and I do want the audience members to ask questions. We've got a question here uh, from uh, Peter Topic Kanov. Kanov. Vita can help me pronounce that last name. Peter, of course, was formerly with the Carnegie Moscow Center, now with Cipri. Uh, how do you pronounce the last name? It's Topichkanov. Topichkanov. Um, not bad for an English Chinese speaker. Yeah, um, indeed. His question, and, and I'll start with Dr. Guan. Um, what's your view, uh, Peter asked, what's your view of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in building a space that's dominated by China and Russia? And will the withdrawal, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, help further develop the common Eurasian space? So the first is is the Shanghai your views of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and China and Russia's participation. Will this help 
build a space where China and Russia are working together and in effect, uh, you know, dominating that region uh, of Eurasia. And given the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, does that also help in those efforts? Uh, it's a, a very uh, sensitive question. Uh, uh, we never recognize uh, Russia and China are dominating member in the uh, SEO. Uh, all members are equal. Uh, so uh, formally, we have the same right in the organization. Uh, of course, uh, China and Russia uh, may put more resources, tensions, and efforts to uh, uh, development of the uh, organization. Uh, but uh, we are very uh, careful uh, when we have uh, other members, or when we are talking about some crucial uh, issue uh, is the first. The second one, of course, uh, Ch uh, China and Russia have their own uh, interests, especially in security. Uh, uh, inside the Eurasia continent, uh, because uh, we do not want to see the instability regional extremism and the uh, terrorism. Uh, so uh, we uh, uh, want to keep the uh, stability and uh, uh, security in the region because it's good for uh, other members country and for uh, Russia and China uh, themselves. Uh, talk about uh, the uh, Afghanistan. Uh, it's very uh, difficult uh, because uh, here in China, we uh, do not understand the logic of the United States action. Uh, when you are a military force uh, uh, move in, uh, we have not uh, any uh, authority uh, permission. But uh, today you want uh, to leave and uh, you are think, uh, thinking about the uh, reaction from Russia and the China side. Uh, we can do nothing. We just uh, look at the uh, situation in Afghanistan. Uh, I mean, it's uh, logically, but uh, of course, China and Russia are both responsible great power. Uh, we must do something together. Uh, of course, it's better if we should do it uh, in triangle uh, with the United States because uh, the worst situation in Afghanistan uh, is uh, not good for everyone from or three countries. Thank you, Dr. Guan. Um, I'm gonna to turn to Andrew um, with another question. Of course, he can comment on anything that you just spoke about, but uh, Marina Zapatini has a question. I wanna to turn to Andrew. Her question is, is um, how, you know, China and Russia have pledged together to limit the US dollar hegemony. Um, is there something behind that? Is there a concrete effort? Will we see actions uh, by China and Russia to actively try to oppose this? Will we see Russia perhaps support the Chinese renminbi uh, as the world's reserve currency? How much uh, is this reality? How much of, you know, is this, is this going to be concrete action? How much of it is just rhetoric? It's a little of both. It's a good question. We've seen indications, for example, in the composition of the Russian central bank's reserves, where they've boosted the portion of their reserves that is RMB denominated. And that was, I think, largely a political gesture. I don't think it made any sense from an economic or financial management standpoint, but it was a nice way of showing uh, friends in Beijing that Moscow welcomes the arrival of the RMB as a global reserve currency. 
On the other hand, we've also seen uh, indications that the Russians are trying to transact more of their crude oil sales in non-dollar denominated currencies. So you see an increase, for example, in euro denominated sales of Russian crude. So they're making strides to de-dollarize the economy. But at the end of the day, the Russian economy is based on a model where they sell largely uh, hydrocarbons and other raw materials in global markets. Most of those markets trade in Western currencies, whether it's dollars or euros. And that's a helpful proposition for the Russian economy because their domestic liabilities, the things that the government has to pay for out of the state budget, are ruble denominated. So the spread between buying and uh, I mean, selling Russian commodities and oil and gas in foreign currencies and then getting the benefit of paying for what the government covers, whether it's teacher salaries, roads, bridges, police, uh, hospitals, that kind of stuff in rubles, is a very favorable model. So the Russian government plays on that and then parks a huge percentage of the leftovers in rainy day funds. So it's an economic model that for the time being is here to stay and that provides for a level of political and economic stability and reassurance. And if you come back to the organizing principle of the Russian state, it's about staying in power and preserving the existing political regime. So keeping as much ammunition in the rainy day funds and in the mattress is, is the name of the game here while reducing vulnerability to Western sanctions. And we've seen, the last thing I'll say is we've seen that the United States by using sanctions in an unfocused and kind of uh, constant manner of just let's keep firing and firing and firing off different types of sanctions in Russia's direction in the hope of producing a strategic effect has made those tools potentially less effective over the long term because we've spurred a lot of what I just described. And if the United States had been a little more uh, reticent, a little more strategic in how we applied our pressure and our economic pressure using sanctions, we might not have accelerated the trend that, that I just described. Thank you very much. Uh, we, I, I wanna get one last question in from, uh, from one of our audience members uh, before, we, before we close. Uh, Faradun Barkeshli uh, has asked a question, and I'll start with Andrew, and then I'll turn to Vita for her perspective as well. Um, how does the, uh, the U.S.-Iran relationship and the Biden team's efforts towards Iran, you know, in terms of getting the diplomacy back on the nuclear side, how does that factor in uh, to, the, to the Russian relationship? How does, uh, what, are, what are some of the Russian concerns? How does Russia play into uh, US-Iran uh, relations as the Biden team begins to take a different approach than we saw in the Trump administration? I'll start with Andrew and then turn to Vita. Just real quick, Russia was part of the original negotiation that led to the JCPOA, the J Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal. And Russia had an important role to play in terms of how we dealt with uh, spent fuel that was in Iran and moving it away from Iran and putting it in safe storage in Russia and then having Russia provide reactor fuel for the civil nuclear plants at Boucher. Um, my expectation is that Russia will continue to see value in the resurrection of the JCPOA and not see uh, a kind of race toward military conflict in the Middle East as in its interest. Um, at the same time, the Russians I'm sure are worried that a level of cooperation and possible uh, reconciliation between the United States and Iran is not in their interest and that they sort of benefit from preserving the existing level of tension and they don't wanna see the United States become one of Iran's most you know, important foreign partners. So they're, they're gonna walk a line where they'll try to support the JCPOA being revived but they're not looking to sort of see the full blossoming of U.S.-Iran uh, cooperation, which isn't in the cards anyways, but, but right. you know, it does create a certain limit on their enthusiasm. Thank you, Andrew. Vita, you're gonna get the last word of our panel this morning. Uh, I, yeah, I would basically agree to, uh, with what Andrew has just said. And I would just like to point out that, uh, well, the whole the, the geostrategic position of Iran is um, close to very important regions uh, to Russia, 
that were, that was the Caucasus region or the Central Asian states where Russia tries to maintain its um, well um, its role as a security provider. Uh, so th they would Russia would be interested in preserving the status quo uh, that has been evolving in the recent years. So uh, basically, that that's just uh, what I wanted to point out. Well, thank you very much. We've got quite a few more questions, but we've unfortunately run out of time. I want to thank all the audience members that sent in their questions, and I'm glad we got to some of them. Um, but I want to thank uh, Andrew Weiss, Dr. Guanghui Hai, and Vita Spivak for a really interesting discussion this morning, uh, diving uh, below the surface of these issues and getting into quite a bit of nuance. Um, and I really appreciate uh, your insights Again, for our audience members, um, we will post this discussion on the China in the World podcast, and we will also post a video recording of the discussion on YouTube so that you can go back and look at it and uh, look forward to a, a future discussion on these issues. We've had nine years running of this conversation. It's been a great conversation, and I really appreciate all of you taking time to join us this morning. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the China in the World podcast. For more episodes and research, please go to carnegiechinghua.org. This episode was produced by Lucas Cheyen with assistance from Madison Reed, Luke Incarnation, Li Chi Shu, John Ferguson, and Sophia Rosso.